Hello friends, colleagues, countrymen. The good news is here. We've got another always be watching and even better news, the feud, it's over. It's lasted a couple of weeks, but myself and Chris, we've made amends. We're back here on the <laughs> podcast. Chris, I know you haven't listened the last couple of weeks, but I have claimed there's been a feud going on. I haven't forgiven you for whatever the feud was about, that's for sure, but I'm a professional, so I'm back here in that professional context. Now, the good news is, I know you will never listen to those episodes, so you won't know about the dirty laundry that I have aired on this here podcast. (laughs) But anyway, the feud is over. We're here to talk about TV and movies, which we do every week. We've got a whole bunch of, like, there's actually some really amazing stuff that's been on the last month, and we haven't been here to talk about it. So this week, we're just going to vomit it all out. We're going to talk about Fargo season four, or is it Fargo four? That's a question we'll get to. There's a great sort of um, underground show that people need to be watching called Good Lord Bird, and I'm going to run through that. There's some amazing movies dropping on Netflix and like other places. We've got Lost in Translation 2. That's not really the name of it. It's called On the Rocks. (laughs) But we'll make the Lost in Translation 2 joke many times through this podcast, and you will be tired of it by the end. We're going to talk about Trial of the Chicago 7, which is the new Aaron Sorkin film. We've got Trolls World Tour. We're going to talk about some <laughs> TV recommendations to throw out there. Chris is going to drop gratuitous Spaceballs mentions. Folks, this is Always Be Watching. We'll be back right after this little ditty, a little jingle that we've been playing in the last couple of years. Folks, this is Always Be Watching. My name, Dan Barrett, joined by... Oh, yeah, me, Chris Yates. Great to be here, Dan. <laughs> I think you've forgotten how a podcast works. Sorry, I just Googled um, Anna Kendrick and... Um, oh, that's you done for, for the afternoon then, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, yes, it's great to be here, Dan. I, I do regret that I missed the last couple of weeks, especially the catch up with Simon, um, who's a lovely chap and has lots of exciting stuff coming up. So I'm sure that would have been good. I will try and listen at some point, life permitting. Indeed. Life, it gets in a way. It gets in a way of two things. One, listening to podcasts. Two, <laughs> like television. Those are the two big I things. I know. It's yeah. hard to squeeze everything in, but I've been trying my best over this period. Look, you're only one man. Folks, we're going to talk about some TV. And I think we just like delve right into it because there's some good yeah, things to run it. through here. Shall we talk about Fargo season four? Do you think of it as Fargo four or season four? I call it Fargo four, but I like doing that sort of silly things. Yeah, because I've never heard anyone call it Fargo 4. So with TV, like in the UK, they call things series. So it's like, oh, here's Peep Show season six. Oh, sorry, series six. Whereas yeah, if it was in the confusing. US, they'd say season six. And it's a bit confusing because confusing I look at the show itself as being a series and individual batches of episodes as being seasons. That's how I see it, but the British see it in another way. Netflix, when they started doing the Stranger Things, when they hit Stranger Things season two, they didn't call it season two. They said Stranger Things 2, as though it was like mm. a sequel to a movie coming out. And you keep on calling this Fargo 4, and the more I think about it, because this is an anthology show, like it kind of is Fargo 4. It's not necessarily season 4. Well, wouldn't it be Fargo 5 if you counted the first movie as Fargo 1? Which I do. This is Fargo <laughs> 5. No, that's going to be too confusing. This is all too confusing. But Chris, look, let's cut through the confusion, and let's go to an audio clip so people know what we're talking about. They feeding you? Mostly peanut butter. Where do you sleep? He's got a room on the third floor. With me. You see he knows education? I'm teaching him how the world works. And how's that? It's dog eat dog. 
That's how dogs work. Men are more complicated. Not in my experience. All right, Chris. Fargo season four. I don't believe that you've watched Fargo's one through three. Is that correct? That is correct. Of course, I'm a big fan of the film. Uh, and when the first season came out, actually, I did watch a little bit of the first season, but I was like, I don't, I don't care about this. I don't need to watch this. Uh, it has no interest to me, which I can't, can't really recall why. Maybe it was a big time for television at the time, or maybe it was just like, you know, anger at the fact that it was unrelated to the film and just seemed like a weird uh, cash in. But of course, it's been doing, you know, it's gone for like another you know, four seasons now. And to be honest, um, the definitely the thing that pushed me over the edge to actually watching it is Chris Rock and um, Jason Schwartzman, who are, you know, are both very entertaining people to watch, even in mediocre things. So I thought, well, this is going to be entertaining. And I'm um, two episodes in and I have been very entertained so far. What about you? Look, first of all, I refuse to believe that Chris Rock has ever been in anything that one would refer to as mediocre. <laughs> he's Fair. a man that chooses all of his projects with artistic merit in mind from Adam Sandler movies through to uh, Lethal Weapon 4 that's unfair there's actually some legitimately amazingly good Chris Rock films including the movie he wrote and directed Top 5 which is I wouldn't say it's one of my top 5 but it's probably in my top 25 it's quite good wow I've never seen that yeah I definitely yeah. should watch that film Actually, top, it's really good top 25 is probably a bit too generous but it is really good I think it's worth yeah, checking yeah. out. Yeah. It was, uh, it was worth it for the wordplay there. Yeah. Look, I thought this is good. I have a problem with Fargo usually when it starts where you got that first season, everyone looked at it saying, what even is this? Why are we even yeah. remaking a Coen Brothers film? This can't be any good. But like everyone, I stuck with it. And by the end of the season, I was like, there's actually some really amazing stuff they did there. And the first season is one episode particularly, which there's a scene that takes place in a snowstorm. And much like in Mission Impossible 4 Ghost Protocol with Tom Cruise going through the <laughs> sandstorm, which is one of cinema's greatest scenes. Like oh legit- my God. You- okay, um, wait a second. We're going to pause the podcast here for a moment. <laughs> the Mission Impossible films, are you not on board with these? Oh, no. Of course I'm not. I might have seen the first one. Okay, yeah. Just don't even worry about the first one. Just go Mission Impossible 4 Ghost Protocol. Watch that. Right. If you don't... I'm going to do it. If you don't effing love that movie... I would be shocked. <laughs> Look, it's not like I'm anti-Tom Cruise. I can definitely get on board when he's doing something stupid and fun. Um, the, Ghost look, Protocol. Ghost Protocol. You'll I'm love it. It's, it down. it's a feature film directed by Brad Bird, who did The Iron Giants. Oh, yeah, right. Brad Bird's awesome. Yeah. But anyway, check it out. If you don't love Ghost Protocol, like, I don't know, this <laughs> podcast right, is right. done for. But anyway, there's an amazing sequence in it that takes place in a sandstorm, which is just incredibly shot. There's a similar sequence in Fargo where he's running through a snowstorm and in the same way, both scenes are very much about characters who've got no visibility whatsoever, but that lack of visibility is transferred to the audience as well, where like literally you just kind of feel like you're out on it and it was just like this amazing sequence. There's another amazing sequence in the first season of Fargo, which has, you've got this office building and it could be an apartment building, I don't really quite remember, but you've got some assassins going through there just shooting up a whole bunch of people, but the entire shot takes place from outside of the building and you just kind of follow the camera up as they're going through this building and it was just this incredibly well shot sequence. Now, I do feel that Fargo has never replicated the visual stunningness of these sequences from the first season. But every season is always a very good watch. There's always incredibly compelling actors in it. And I always find for two or three episodes at the beginning, I start the season and I don't know why I'm watching it. I'm like, I'm not enjoying this at all. I can't be bothered keeping up with these characters. 
But there's something that happens around like the end of episode two going into three where suddenly it just locks in for me and I'm in for that season. And this season, I wouldn't say that I was completely on the outer from the first episode. I think it's a bit of an easier watch than previous seasons. Mm. But I don't know, I'm like two or three episodes in. It's been a couple of weeks now since I watched it, so I don't quite remember exactly what I watched. But it's good. I'm really enjoying yeah, the season. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's really great. I got pretty much sucked in straight away. I think, you know, the historical con- kind of context of it is awesome. You know, we're seeing a lot of stuff um, based in uh, segregated America. And this is bringing it from such an interesting angle where you've got the um, the, the black crime gang that's, you know, run by Chris Rock uh, with a certain with a, with a different amount of power and, and the way that Chris Rock's using the sort of segregation to his advantage and to the, to the gang's advantages at some points. And... Um, the way that they're trying to turn their, you know, sort of massive crime or criminal organization into legitimate um, business is fantastic and interesting. And then, um, so you put that up against the um, Italians and it's just, it's just amazing. One of the really interesting things I think from that era too, is, you know, this, it's very easy to think of Italians, you know, in the kind of, the the way that we regard them now, which is as these uh, you know incredible um, lovable food, pizza makers, art <laughs> lovable pizza makers, um, but you know of course in the early days of American immigration and in Australian immigration as well, you know the um, the Italians were very much um, ostracised as um, you know third class citizens or whatever, and it's interesting seeing that kind of being examined and the you know I guess the the similar um the similar ways that they existed outside of normal society as as did um you know black americans through a lot of this period so that sort of stuff's really cool that's really cool in its sort of context and the setup the whole thing do you want me to do a little bit more story the whole thing i want want to do some um, story but before we do that you just have to on two things that i'm kind of interested in uh first of all i I find this interesting because it's not just talking about the immigration of Italians and the way that they created a mob to try to create business and like stimulate their future generations wealth. But you've got the African-Americans who are also in like their gangs who are doing a very similar thing. So it's post-slavery by what, like 60 years? I'm yeah. trying to do some math there. They're about to mumble our way through. Not that. long, yeah. not long. Not long. Sure. So I mean, they're kind of in that same position as the Italians were where, you know, they are in this sort of period of wealth generation and trying to, they're using crime effectively in the same way the Italians are. But the Italians at the beginning are counted against Russians who were maybe a generation beforehand who'd come through and done the exact same thing. So it's kind of like this intergenerational immigration story like from a criminal perspective. And I'm certainly not saying that all generations of immigrants coming into countries are immediately entering crime families and like running mobs. But this is the... Yes, you are, Dan. But this is the, <laughs> the viewpoint that I was taking in the show. We're seeing it from the perspective of the mob families that have done this as a way to generate wealth for themselves. But the other thing you were saying, which was the idea that Italians were looked down upon in the same way that, you know, we traditionally think about the African-American community or other people of color. Like, don't forget, like right up until, and talking about Australian society here more than necessarily elsewhere, in Australia, like you're looking at like the rise of wog culture through the 1980s with the popular wogs out of work stage show and then the TV program totally. Metropolis yeah, now. Yeah. Like that was still treated as a joke. And that was 
it was only really in I think that period of the 80s where suddenly European Australians really sort of reached a stage of being taken seriously once Acropolis now went off the air. But like they were still, <laughs> they needed to be sort of integrated into society as part of the joke and own the joke in order for them to like reach that next level of just being considered everyday white Australia. And like I grew up totally. in the 80s as a kid. And so a lot of my thinking is that, you know, I sort of come from a heritage. My family aren't uh, Italian. So my mum's side of this family is Slovenian. Very similar sort of region. But like I kind of grew up with the idea that, you know, people were kind of laughing at like my mum's side of the family a bit. And it was only sort of after like that period and entering into the 90s that I started to feel like it just kind of like leveled out. Yeah, the elevation of food culture has had a lot to do with that. You know, like we've got this yeah. sort of very foodie prestigious thing. And I mean, that's... Uh, it's always crass to talk about it that way, but I mean, it really has had a massive impact on that. And, um, and I think, like you say, these kind of, um, self-effacing, um, jokes, I mean, and we've seen it way more recently than that too. We've seen it with like pizza, you know, the, with the Lebanese community and oh, absolutely. Um, They're doing pizza the exact same and, thing. you know, it just keeps kind of going. It, it just keeps kind of going. And, um, yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting way of looking at it. I think back in that time as well. Uh, how about the plot of the story? So what's the actual season about? Yes, cool. So the, you've got the two crime gangs that are trying to work together in a way that will be beneficial to both of them. So you see these sort of stories prop up in all these mob things. You've got big families um, and they want to try and uh, figure out a way that they can distribute territory. They're both getting really big. They both got obvious sort of territory that they want to, but they both want to expand. So they're working on the ways to do that. The really interesting plot point that I'd never heard before or seen in any of these movies, weirdly, is the idea that the two, um, in, in order for the two families to respect each other and to sort of be open and transparent, the um, leader of each crime unit gives up their oldest son to go and live with the other family so that they can be treated with a level of respect and also transparency, I suppose, because it's almost like having an insider on the other on the other team and you hear about how that's happened previously the characters um some of the older characters talk about how they went and lived with the i think it was like it was, was it the irish and the italians as well i think they talk about as well there was like irish gangs too and so you you kind of got this um this uh thing where you know you've got these young kids who are like probably 13 or something like that that are going that are being ripped out of their families and being um sent across town so that creates all this amazing uh, tension between the between the families as well as inside the family so you've got you know a lot of pressure from the from the mums and um the the grandmas and the aunties and the women basically who want to get these kids back safe and who are horrified at this situation but you know they're all part of it and they're all involved and they all live off from that uh wealth as well well i just love there's that really unique character in it who's the like child from the Irish mob that was in the town for a while. And that kid had in fact turned against his family and sided with the Italians and opened the door for the Italians to come through and just murder the rest of his family. And you see him as the adult now looking after Chris Rock's son. And he's got all this guilt about what he'd done to his family and the choice that he'd made. And we heard him in that clip just a moment ago. But the choice that he made and the life situation that he's in now as a result of it all. Totally. And that's the character played by Ben Wishaw, who's amazing. You know, like he's the, I, I love that guy. He was in the, um, uh, the perfume story of a murderer film, which I thought was, I don't know how that film, I was going to say it was underrated, but I don't actually know how, um, how that was received that movie. I really liked the book and I thought the movie was amazing, but he was famously, of course, in Nathan Barley, um, the, uh, Charlie Brooker show where he played the, um, 
He played famously the... in that. You could also talk about him appearing in, I don't know, the James Bond movies, for example. <laughs> See, this is where we're very different. But um... the TV series that he starred in called, I want to say it was called The Hours. It was like a four-part British series that was very well regarded. And of course, he appeared opposite Hugh Grant in the recent um, A Very English Scandal. I think the show was Yeah, called. right. Like yeah. he always does his very, like he's never a lead character really. Even in Perfume, he's kind of a secondary character, even though he's the focus of it. He's still sort of secondary to the, everything that's going on in the film. Like he's not a, he's not a, like a leading guy, but he's just so good, I think. Like I really, really, he's very believable in everything he's in. And, he, and definitely in this as well. I was stoked to see him in there. So again, another big tick for the cast in this one. Um, yeah, so you, uh, I think by the end of the second episode, which is where I was at, you know, they were, there's already starting to become some tensions and there is already starting to become a lot of pressure to try and get the truce happening in a way that is beneficial for everybody so that, um, you know, the, the kids can go back to their families, but also so the families can continue to grow and make more money. And then you've got this amazing, excellent side plot as well, which is funny and one of these things where um, Chris Rock and uh, his organize, his criminal organization are trying to introduce this concept, which they've already um, introduced to their black community, but they want to take it wider, which is the uh, far-fetched idea of a credit card, Dan. A credit card? What? <laughs> I love this idea. So they're going into white banks and they're saying, hey, you guys should uh, get on board this. We've got this card. We're doing it. This is how it works. People spend money they don't have yet. You get to own them forever, basically. <laughs> and um, at the end of the second episode, still not having much luck convincing uh, the white banks to get on board with it, uh, because of course, you know, who would want to, who would do this, um, who would want to treat their customers so badly, and who would give someone a product that's so obviously designed to keep them in poverty, and all these hilarious comments on credit cards, which I thought were really, really fun. But it, it's also a really cool kind of interesting way of um, the transition from street gangs to uh, organized to, to banks, basically <laughs> the real criminals. And the subtext of those scenes were always, Hey, these white people saying no to the idea, but you know that they steal and no doubt. And yeah, yeah, of course yeah. I did a bit of research and that seems to be exactly what's happened actually. Yeah. Is that really the case? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, the other person probably worth mentioning this as well is this actress, Jessie Buckley, who plays a very quirky nurse in this. Um, yes. I'm not quite sure exactly what the long-term plan is for that character, but I'm kind of curious to see where it ends up. And Jesse Buckley is obviously interesting because a couple of weeks ago on the podcast when we had Mark Humphreys with us, uh, we were talking about the, uh, the film I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And we were talking about oh, the young actress. Yes, that that's, I, I didn't even make that connection. But yeah, you're right. That's her, isn't it? Jeez. Yeah. And she's Oof. having quite the year. You will see her on a whole bunch of things coming up very soon. Another very weird addition to the cast is the uh, violin player slash multi-instrumentalist um, Andrew Bird, who I didn't even know did any acting. He's a he's a qu quirky guy that is very well respected and people get like right into his, how would you call it, a cerebral brand of sort of experimental folk stuff. Yeah, I didn't know he was an actor at all and I, have got, I haven't done the research to see how he kind of became wound up into this um into this story but it's very strange hey we probably need to move on a bit but um fargo season four two thumbs up from me it's fantastic stuff uh, i did see a video on youtube with someone saying fargo season four why people don't like this season and i haven't really heard anyone dismissing this season so i don't know if that's just a youtube video just trying to get some clicks or if there's actually an, a conversation happening that i just haven't come across yeah, let's keep our eye out on that. And I would be really keen to revisit this uh, when the season's finished and see if it played out as much as we were hoping it would. Yeah, I've never seen a Fargo season not necessarily play out to the best of its strengths. 
But also this is a season that was interrupted by COVID. So they filmed, I think, I want to say it's like an eight episode run, 10 episode run. And maybe oh. filmed like eight episodes and then had to come back for the final two, like months and months later. Very interesting. Hmm. Hey, let's move on. I want to talk a, about a brand new show. It's currently airing here on Stan, but comes from Showtime in the US. It's called The Good Lord Bird. My name is John Brown and I am here to defeat slavery. They say I am insane. John Brown weren't known, but I was going to stick by the captain, same as he always stuck by me, crazy as he may be. I ain't never been shot at till I met you. Truth be told, I ain't seen a person murdered till I met you. I would stay off that subject entirely. Good Lord Bird, it stars Ethan Hawke. It is executive produced by Ethan Hawke. It's co-created by Ethan Hawke. There's a lot of Ethan Hawke in this. And look, first of all, I'm totally on board for that because... You love Ethan Hawke. Who doesn't love Ethan Hawke? He's great. Like, I think he's gone from someone who was, I think, seen by a lot of people and myself included in that, dismissed pretty early in as being just a bit of a pretty boy actor who he'll have his moment in the sun, but it'll just kind of fade away. But as he's gotten older, as his career's gone on, he just keeps on going off to like really just super interesting stuff. Uh, some of the best movies of the last couple of years are all Ethan Hawke joints. Really? Yeah, he's um, fascinated with him. If you haven't seen First Reformed, like add that to the Ghost Protocol list, Chris, because it's right, another good one. Yeah. That's a very serious movie about a priest going through a... <laughs> you're not writing, you're just making noises like you're writing. <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, that's a film that's about a priest who's going through a crisis of faith and there's some very topical issues involved there but I don't want to talk too much about it because so much of that film is the discovery of what this character is going through and just going with him very quiet it's a film that's not for everyone but I think if you're willing to put in the time and energy on that film like it is amazingly rewarding and yeah I think definitely one of the best films that Ethan Hawke's done through his career but this show Good Lord Bird it's a eight episode run. It won't run anything longer than that. And the plot of it is basically, it's a retelling of the real life uh, story of John Brown. He was an abolitionist who was out to free as many slaves as possible. And look, I don't know too much about the John Brown story. It's not really a part of history that I'm like overly familiar with, but essentially he uses some incredibly violent means in order to free as many slaves along the way as he can. Good on him. Everything about this looks and feels like a Quentin Tarantino movie in that everything's just like a little bit hyper-realistic to a certain degree. There's a lot of violence going on. There's a lot of over-the-top monologues coming from the Ethan Hawke, John Brown character. And the premise of it is basically John Brown in the, I think, first two or three minutes of it, he frees like this family of slaves. But things go pear-shaped and I think he was getting his hair cut, so it must have been like a barber. I can't quite remember. It was a bit of an unusual saloon barber type uh, room going on. But anyway, he ends up getting involved in a gunfight with everyone around and the family end up largely being killed despite him trying to save them. But their son lives. So it's like a young African-American kid who's maybe like 11 years old, I want to say. He ends up being taken in by the John Brown character as his ward. But because he's a young African-American kid and there's some confusion from a way that he gets referenced at the beginning, the John Brown character thinks that he's a girl. And so he goes and gets him a dress and this kid is going around acting and pretending to be a girl because he doesn't want to speak up because he's concerned that if he speaks up, then the John Brown character will act like every other white person and feel embarrassed about the situation and do this kid harm. So... 
He's going mm. through this ridiculous situation where he's walking through the forest dressed as a girl, living with a family of nut jobs, particularly the John Brown character who is very much unhinged and all over the place. And they've nicknamed him Onion, and he's just going along with it. Everything is hyper real. It's ridiculous. There's a whole bunch of real life people in this. Uh, so Frederick Douglass is a character, for example. There's a whole bunch of great character actors in this. So the aforementioned Frederick Douglass is played by David Diggs, who's having a bit of a turn at the moment. Orlando Jones is in this. Uh, Wyatt Russell, Steve Zahn. Uh, who else is in there? I remember seeing uh, David Morse is in there. There's a whole bunch of faces that you definitely know from around the place. And I've only seen the first episode so far. I think episodes who may have dropped yesterday as we record this, mm. but I think this might be one of those special shows that not everyone's going to jump on immediately, but as people just stumble across it, it is a world that is a far easier watch than I expected. I thought period drama, it looks a little bit funny, but you know, this is not going to be my kind of thing. I was immediately on board. Like within, mm. about, th- within about three or four minutes, I was like, this is doing some really wild, interesting stuff. Yeah, I read an article about it um, where I still didn't really have any idea what it was about, but it was pointing on the fact that it's just, it's it's really loopy and really got some crazy, interesting ideas happening in it, which is something that, of course, I'm, yeah, always up for. Yeah, and I can't work out where this is going over the next eight episodes. Now, if I knew more about the story, it's based on a book as well, I'd probably have some sort of an idea where this is heading, but this is a nutball TV show. I'm yeah, awesome. really fascinated with it. Yeah, cool. Well, I am uh, definitely looking forward to getting to getting involved. It's an interesting, you know, another program um, that's uh, an, another show that's going to take an interesting look at race, which is uh, race relations and I guess how we got to where we got to in America. It's all very timely and all very uh, interesting and vital, I would say, at this time. At least we can have some discussions about it um, with our, you know, with the popular culture we're consuming. It's fantastic. Now, that is the perfect segue into a film called Trial of the Chicago 7, but because that would be a professional way to approach this, I'm not going to do that. Let's have a bit of a sorbet first and talk about a little <laughs> film that Chris likes to refer to as Lost in Translation 2. And that's fair enough. Uh, most people would probably know this film more, though, as On the Rocks. I don't know why women get plastic surgery. Because of men like you. I prefer the factory original. <laughs> yeah, and every other make and model. Thank you. I'm going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> So in that clip there, you've got the great Bill Murray. You've got the even greater Rashida Jones. I'm looking at Chris scrunch up his face <laughs> as I say that. Uh, Bill Murray, Rashida Jones, and directed by Sofia Coppola. I think everyone, when we saw this, we looked at this initially thinking there is a very strong connection to one Lost in Translation. And that's fair enough. So Lost in Translation came out almost 20 years ago. Amazing. I love that film. I'm deeply like into that film. We'll no doubt talk about Lost in Translation in a moment. But what's maybe interesting is if you think about Lost in Translation as Sofia Coppola using the Scarlett Johansson character as an avatar for where she was during her 20s, okay? Yeah. And that character, you remember, she had a bit of a love affair with the Bill Murray character. He was an aloof character and it was sort of quasi-sexual, quasi-romantic, quasi-who-could-really-define-that-exactly. And the film went out of its way not to really define that relationship entirely. Yeah even to the point of the whisper at the end. What did he say, Chris? What did he say? We'll never know. <laughs> I never but cared. You- <laughs> but yeah, no, you're right. It's, it, and it's to the film's strengths that it did all those things. Absolutely. So you've got that as Sofia Coppola's avatar of her in her 20s, but this is kind of her with the avatar of her 20 years later. So she's telling the story of Rashida Jones, who's a 
uh, writer. She's having a bit of writer's block. She's uh, struggling to come up with like that next thing that she needs to be writing. I think it's her second or third book. I can't remember if they even sort of say if that's just an assumption I made. But she doesn't quite know what's going on. Her husband is going off to work. He's launched a new like um, digital commerce venture and he's really busy with that. She thinks that he might be having an affair. And so she mentions that to her father, who's a bit of a philanderer through his own life. And like his relationship with Rashida Jones's mother, like that ended badly because it cheated on her. So Rashida Jones has always grown up with knowing that her father's a bit of a, you know, a, a love rat would be a word that I'd use as taken from magazines. As you've been called yourself on many occasions. Uh, yeah, you know, not self-described love rat from my perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we heading with Sorry. this? But in the same way that Scarlett Johansson was an avatar in her 20s, this is an avatar for Coppola in her 30s. And even to the point where the relationship with the Bill Murray character changes. So instead of being a romantic, quasi-sexual relationship there, he's now moved into more of a father, father figure relationship and slightly aloof and you can't quite work out exactly what that relationship is. And I suspect that Sophia Coppola probably looks at Bill Murray the same way, not quite knowing exactly <laughs> where she stands with him, but you know, also having that very close bond with him. Uh, the two of them have worked on a number of projects together at this point. So saying that they have a bond probably isn't really too much of a stretch, really. Rashida Jones is probably just mad that, um, still upset that Jim left her for Pam. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't be? <laughs> yeah. Now, I know that you're not really the biggest Rashida Jones fan, and the two of us have discussed this at length in previous Look, times. I just think she's pretty dull, you know? Like, I think she's the dullest character in The Office, and they rightly got rid of her, and then to see a pop-up in Parks and Recreation uh, was kind of like, oh, here we go again. And, you know, like I've re recently rewatched pretty much all of Parks and Recreation because, I, you know, despite its faults, I love it. But the um, but she's definitely, like, she's the hardest-going part of the entire series, and, and I really just as i look at that i'd rather see a film with jerry and um uh bill murray in a bit of a fatherly relationship or something like that like and and of course if you're a parks and Rec fan you know how much of an insult that is but you know i mean she's not entirely just un unlikable but i do feel like she's always you know the, the way she's used as this kind of straight boring person to counteract all the weirdos around her it's just kind of like why would you bother why, why does she have this quality that's going to make her a, a star now? Here's the thing. That quality that she has is probably well used in this film because it's a character who sees herself as a little bit boring, that she's not really going anywhere in life. And she's kind of just right. at home looking after the kids. And she feels just a little bit staid and isn't really the exciting person that she believes she once was. Whether she actually was, you know, who knows? Yeah. We always have different viewpoints of ourselves than the reality <laughs> really was. However, she's kind of in this sort of rut of a uh, stage in life and she thinks her husband might be having this affair. So the way the trailer and the way the film is built is the idea that she thinks that her husband's having an affair, tells her husband, and then the two of them go out on like this wild night in New York City together and try trailing the guy to see if he actually is having an affair or not. And the film certainly does that to an extent. It's not all in one night. It's actually spread out over, I think, maybe about like two or three weeks, but it's kind of a sort of small condensed thing. And I've heard other people refer to this as being a bit of a love letter to New York City because the film's gorgeously shot. It's in New York. There's a lot of location shooting. But the thing that I found was that, one, they're not really having sort of a big night out in New York because the love affair that they have with the city is really based around the same two or three blocks and they don't really travel that far. And I think the problem this movie has is that you've got this Rashida Jones character who is supposedly feeling a little bit boring and doesn't really venture that far outside of her apartment. 
there's literally one other character that she talks to. And then like there's a scene with her mother, but like that's not even much. But they don't really grow out this character at all to show any of the smaller relationships she might have. It's just like she drops off the kids at school, listens to this boring mother at work at school who tells her stories about her own romantic life. And then she goes off to try to write for a few hours and then picks up the kids and deals with her husband in the evening. And that's kind of her life. But they don't really show her like dealing with the guy who runs the local coffee cart or just sort of growing yeah, out her yeah, world yeah. at all. Like it just doesn't really... I don't want like big relationships. I just want to see what she's actually doing as a functioning human being, but you don't really get to see that. And then when they actually sort of show these wild like night out in New York, you keep on hearing about how, Oh, they go to the 21 club and all this other stuff. But there's like literally a scene where they go driving around in a car and it still looks nice in the city. And that's kind of about it. You don't really feel like New York's an integral part of the story. It could really be anywhere. And when I think about like a love story and a love letter to New York, I think about movies like, I don't know if you ever saw it. It's a, not a very good film. But it's like George Clooney and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer in One Fine Day. And it's like this ridiculous like love story where the two of them, it's like a quirky love story where they're like stuck together because their kids are supposed to go on like a school excursion somewhere and they don't quite make it. So each of them have to look after their kids for the day. But, you know, they take turns like throughout the day to make stuff happen. But like they're actually wandering around New York City and it feels like there's stuff going on. I don't know if you've seen a Woody Allen film before, but like a lot of those could be considered love letters to New York. This was a love letter to the three blocks around where her apartment supposedly set. And that's kind of about it. Uh, these streets look really nice. And I know where it is in New York. I've walked around those streets and it's lovely, but like, it's not like the city. It's literally two and a half blocks. There's not much going on in it. And this is the problem with the film. It feels like it should be bigger than it is. But because it's a fairly small story, they've tried to confine the relationships of the characters down to like pairing them back to the bare minimum. And I just couldn't really find any magic going on. Love Bill Murray. I think his character's fun. The Rashida Jones's character, like I wanted to empathize with her more, but there just wasn't really enough to latch onto. Look, if nothing else, at least finally we've got a movie set in New York that talks about New York and, you know, there certainly hasn't <laughs> been enough of them before. We had but to it put doesn't, it in, though. There was actually... <laughs> no, the critics talk about the fact, fact do the film does it, but I don't think the film does it enough. There's um, a bit of a ban on New York uh, stories and films based in New York in our house. Well, there was at least a little while ago after watching something like six things in a row, like just going out on a limb and like, oh, we'll try this new thing. Oh, it's set in Brooklyn. We'll try this new thing. Oh, cool. It's set in Manhattan. It was just like, it's just so, I mean, you know, it's ridiculous to say it's overdone. It's obviously the cultural pop culture center of the world for the last 40 years or so. But I mean, yeah, geez, I could probably do without another, I could probably do without some New York films for a while. Here's the thing I could do with more of them. Just load me up. Sometimes yeah, that's yeah, all yeah. I want to watch in the world. So anyway, this is a new film. It's playing in cinemas. It might still be in some cinemas now, but it's debuting on the Apple TV Plus service next weekend. Um, it's good. Like, I think people will enjoy it, but I just found it was a little bit empty in a way that I actually wanted it to be lost in translation too, which was just one of these magical films that I had such a strong connection to. And like this just kind of left me so cold. Well, maybe it's you that's changed, Dan, or maybe it's that, heaven forbid... Rashida Jones isn't as enigmatic on screen as Scarlett Johansson. I mean, look, there's probably a big part of that. <laughs> now, did I ever tell you just talking about Lost in Translation for a moment? Uh, I went to Japan last year. It feels like an eternity ago in COVID times. But like, I went to the hotel bar from Lost in Translation. It's a fun L thing to do. A little bit of an inside tip. Not as big as it looks in the movie. <laughs> Much like Bill Murray. Yeah. Bill wasn't there though, which is unfortunate. 
if he was there, he probably would have done some karaoke with you or something. That's that's his thing, right? Yeah, I think that's the thing that he does. Now, a film that I really enjoyed doesn't feature any karaoke. It's a film called The Trial of the Chicago 7. Are the people ready to make opening arguments? At the defense table. Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Dave Dellinger, Rennie Davis, Lee Weiner, John Freund, Tom Hayden, and Bobby Seale. These defendants had a plan, and the plan was to incite a riot. I call this portion of the trial with friends like these. <laughs> my trial's begun without my lawyer. The court assumes you are being represented by the Black Panther sitting behind you. The riots were started by the Chicago Police Department. Sustained. Nobody objected. Trial of Chicago 7. Now, Chris, I don't know how much you're familiar with the Trial of Chicago 7, who the Chicago 7 were. Are you across any of this? Uh, no. Okay, so this is uh, telling the story of Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, as well as five other people that were involved in this uh, court trial. Uh, so these are basically radical protesters who were caught up in some riots in Chicago in 1968. They were accused of being the instigators of the riot that took place. This was a big thing with a uh, Republican convention taking place in the city at the same time. You've got the police who are obviously, you know, very much representing the interests of the man. And you've got these hippies that had um, come about. So you've got the cultural tensions against the traditional nature of um, policing and I guess where the rest of America was at at that time. And it's all really being represented through this interesting court case, which you've got a whole lot of members of the public who are very supportive of. But then you've also got the other more traditional side of the public who have an interest in not seeing the hippies be able to sort of mount a uh, position of strength um, through this court case. I knew nothing about this beforehand. And having heard an interview with writer-director Aaron Sorkin, he knew nothing about this either. And the one thing I found while I was watching it is that I don't think you, A, need to know anything about it going into it, nor do I think you necessarily leave this film any more informed <laughs> yeah, about right. what was going on. But like that's the strength of this movie as well, where what's really interesting about it is it feels like it's telling the story of the Chicago 7 from 1968, but it's actually telling a story about the riots that, well, not necessarily the riots, but the protests that we've seen in the last couple of months across the US. And it's interesting because this film was produced before these protests were really necessarily a thing taking place. But just the resonance of how this film approaches it versus what we've actually seen on our TV news over the last couple of months, like it kind of feels like it's telling a very contemporary story, but through the framework of something that's in the past, which allows us to contextualize it a little bit more. This is like easily a film that could be described as just a crowd pleaser in a very traditional Hollywood movie style court case. You know, everything comes out sweet for everyone at the end. There's moments where they go through moments of um, self-doubt and um, frustration with each other. Everyone comes out with greater respect for one another and their fellow man. And there's moments where the music swells and you get like great speeches and monologues and you've got all that going. But at the same time, there's this undercurrent running through the entire film, which is very much about not being traditional Hollywood, but it's about protest. It's about bringing down established institutions. It's a really cool, interesting film. Mm. Yeah, it and sounds yeah. like it. I, I really like the idea of something that, you know, that is historical and has that context, but doesn't dwell on it. It isn't just there to educate you about it. That's really cool. Yeah, and like the thing is, if this movie had come out, say last year, for example, I don't know that this film would really necessarily resonate in the way that it did. But I just found myself in a like I played in a cinema. This comes out on Netflix uh, this coming weekend, so people will see this very quickly. 
Uh, like it's a film that I had goosebumps watching because it just kind of felt so of the moment and I just connected with it so much to the point that, and look, it seems even silly pointing this out because this is a thing that's been a historical issue like any time that there's been protests involved. But there's just like this one sequence where you see the hippies facing down against the police who uh, it's really sort of going through the PTSD of one character as he remembers back to the sequence happening in his uh, in his relatively recent past. But it's these hippies facing down against the police and the police end up taking their badges and put them in their pocket so that the police ID numbers can't be um, read. Uh, What is Like, please have their names on it. It's not an ID badge number. But you don't see the names and so the police can't be identified. And it's the thing that goes on at every protest and, you know, people complain about it. But people were doing it the most recent protests, uh, seeing police there with no badges and like having to contend with that and just seeing it on screen as part of this moment, like it just kind of really hit me and like I felt like the stomach like kick. It was just like, this is a very contemporary story with lots of people with shaggy beards and uh, flowers in their hair. <laughs> yeah, well, that's cool. Um, is this, a, did it, is it meant to have a proper cinema release or was this always going to be a Netflix thing that became, uh, un, this, you know, or is it because of the COVID Uh, This was a film that was going to be released by Paramount. Uh, In typical Paramount fashion from the last year and a half, they're retreating from cinemas. Uh, They feel that they aren't necessarily going to make the most money they can from it. So they've just been selling everything. And Paramount this time ended up selling it to Netflix. There was already some international distribution deals in place to play in cinemas. So that was obviously the goal for it. So it took a bit of a wheeling deal with Netflix apparently to buy back the entire rights for it. But they did. So the thing with Netflix as well is if there's a film that is going to get like an Academy Award, a uh, bit of buzz for it, which this film is definitely, I think, the front contender for that right now. Uh, they wow. usually do a bit of a cinema release to build up the prestige of it a bit. But also sure. in Los Angeles and New York, you need to play it in a certain number of theatres to be uh, Oscar like, quality. Ah, for it to be eligible. Yeah. Right. But in this instance, it's just purely they want to make it look like a prestige play. And it absolutely is. It like, plays like gangbusters on the big screen. And I'm hoping on a small screen it has that same resonance because I thought this was really good. Uh, the cast on it are really interesting as well. So you've got Eddie Redmayne playing uh, one of the main guys, Tom Hayden. I don't know if I've actually seen anything with Eddie Redmayne in it before. I'm sure I have. He looked familiar, but I think it was just familiar from, hey, here's a celebrity and from a whole bunch of movies that I just never got around to see. Uh, but then you've got Sasha Baron Cohen playing Abby Hoffman, and he's Sweet. a standout in it. Jeremy Strong, who most people know at the moment from Succession, uh, he's in it playing Jerry Rubin. You've got the great character actor, John Carroll Lynch in there. Uh, you've got the um, actor who's the man of the moment. And I know I'm going to say his name wrong, but it's uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II. Uh, people know him from Watchmen playing Dr. Manhattan, uh, but also like he's just in a whole bunch of stuff right now. Uh, you've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt in it. Uh, Mike Rylance is in there. Franklin Jella. I'm sure I saw a woman in there somewhere. There are many. It's a very dude-heavy film. Uh, there's also one actor who I don't really want to say who he is. He is in the trailer, so it's not a surprise that he's in the movie. But when he turns up in the movie like three quarters of the way through, suddenly it's like, oh my God, it's insert name of actor who I absolutely love. But it kind of feels like his casting is kind of like a bit of a stunt moment in the same way that Sean Connery turns up at the end of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah, yeah, like, sure. <laughs> it's supposed to be there just for a bit of a fun uh, reaction. But anyway, that guy... He's great. He's in a couple of scenes and like the scene stealers. Everything's good. Everyone gets a great moment in this film. It's traditional Hollywood, but also it's topical Hollywood. Awesome stuff. Well, and at least Netflix exists so people will get a chance to see it at this time. 
Yeah, look, absolutely. So as I said, like it debuts this coming weekend. So we're talking at the moment on a Wednesday afternoon. This will be on your Netflix on Friday evening. Um, I went to the cinema, Dan. No, you didn't. I did. I went to the cinema twice. I was on holidays with my children. So I went to see two children's movies. Would you like to hear about one or both of them? Uh, it depends what they are. All right. So the first we went and saw was um, Return of the Jedi. I saw Return of the Jedi at the cinema when I was a small a child with my family. So I got to take my son to see that, which was a beautiful moment. Um, and I absolutely, you know, it's always been my favorite of the original trilogy um, just because of the sort of my personal memories around it and because of it, obviously not because it's the best of the three, but um, yeah, it was amazing going to see that with him and, and taking that. And there was nobody there in the cinema with us. So that was fun too, because we could yell and cheer and carry I on. also saw Return of the Jedi at the cinema in the last uh, two weeks. Was it two, three holds weeks up. ago? Holds up. <laughs> the two of us were like messaging each other and we didn't know that we were at the cinema. To see That's right. the Jedi. So but yeah, true. we saw it at the exact same time at different cinemas. Yeah, so it's like you were there too. It's a beautiful moment. Um, but then more recently this weekend, we went and saw um, Trolls World Tour. Hey, shall we play a clip? Oh, if you've got one. Hey, man. There he is. King Trollex of the Techno Trolls, right? That's right. Who's asking? Queen Bard of the Hard Rock Trolls. And I'm here to take your string, bro. No way. Ooh, don't do it, man. If we lose our string, we lose our music. You mean your bleeps and bloops? Beep, 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 boo. Yeah, that's not music. So Trolls World Tour, this was supposed to be a cinema release in the US and then went straight to digital video on demand because there were no cinemas open at the time. But it's been playing in cinemas here. And how does it play on a big screen? Oh, look, it's totally stupid, but it's interesting at a few <laughs> levels. Um, you know, it's based around this whole idea of this kind of concept of musical tribes and how they um, all fight against each other and how the hard rock musical tribe, uh, of course, are the scariest ones and they are wanting to turn all of the um, the lands in Troll Land into hard rock loving music lands. Um, and, you know, you've heard there, there was a joke about Trollex, the techno guy which was probably voiced by Skrillex I wouldn't have a clue um the big dubstep dude but it, it's like it, it you know there's a lot of these jokes and a lot of this musical stuff is aimed at adults and I think you know kind of weirdly in that I it really feels like at this point in time as a music consumer that um, genres and those kind of segregations are sort of less prevalent than they've ever been but this what? movie wants to really emphasize them it's weird you say that because, look, I haven't seen Trolls World Tour and the couple of minutes I've seen of it now, like, I'll be honest, it didn't necessarily inspire me to want to watch the rest of the film. But I came across the first five minutes, which you can watch on YouTube, and the clip that we got, the audio from there, is from the first couple of minutes of the film. But I was kind of really struck with the idea that they were just painting the bad guys as being traditional, like, 1970s, like, classic MTV, uh, classic Triple <laughs> yeah. M rock as being the bad guys and like their music's supposed to be like this really loud, like angry bombastic stuff. But I can't remember what the song was that they were playing, but it just felt like Joan Jett or something like that. It wasn't <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> like it was basically totally. sort of that crazy, but it just seems strange. And that surely the grandparents who were taking their kids along were probably people who were listening to that music when they were Look, like, it's sort so of, odd. Of it's like it just kind place. of felt like the music of like people who are now in their like late forties, early fifties. And so, like, depict that as, like, sort of angry, like, bad music, considering that they're the ones who probably paid for the tickets to go and see the movie to begin with. <laughs> it just seemed like a strange choice. 
Look, there's a lot of strange choices in it. You know, one of the things, obviously, like um, hip hop, the biggest musical dominant force on the planet for the last, I don't even know how many years, 10 years at least, um, in far as, as far as pop music goes, is presented as like, it, it's it's kind of mentioned as this off offhand um, comment as a sort of re relative of the funk trolls because um, and 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 the way it's even mentioned is in a way that you could tell somebody who was reading the script midway through production and went like, hey, have you guys even heard of hip hop music? Like, the, <laughs> it's pretty big with the kids. You might want to include a bit of it or something like that. But Very like, strange. It's not even oh. big with the kids, like the parents who are taking the kids along. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, like hip hop really came around like late eighties, like when pretty mainstream. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's you know, been it's a while. It's baffling to like not include hip hop, not really treat like classic rock seriously. It just seems yeah, it's strange. real funny. It's 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 really silly. Like there there's some really funny moments, and like it is written for adults, and you know, just of course all the troll stuff's enough to keep the kids entertained. So it was good, and it worked as far as a family movie goes. But the one thing I really wanted to mention is it does the same weird thing that Frozen Two does. You've you've heard me at length um, go on about my up and down relationship with Frozen Two over the. 30 or 40 times that I've um, now watched it with my daughter. But, um, Roxon. Roxon, Roxon gets it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so Frozen. Roxon's hashtag team also. <laughs> so Frozen 2 does this weird thing where it tries to deal with colonialism and build and, and the way that, you know, the, the heroes that built the, the, the land that, um, Elsa is the queen of. Uh, actually did it at the expense of the indigenous people of the area and the whole kind of crux of the movie is about trying to restore um, some balance there and to return um, to, to, to allow the indigenous people to, to move out of the forest of mist where they've had to live for the last 40 years because of a terrible deal because of a scam done by Elsa and Anna's father. So the trolls ridiculously attempts to do a very similar thing where the, the, the main trolls that you follow are the pop trolls and it's revealed late in the film spoiler alert that the um that the pop trolls were actually the ones responsible for the musical segregation and for for breaking it all apart and that you know poppy um who's anna kendrick i assume is trying to um uh you know you reunite all the worlds of music and make everybody happy and and love each other again um, believing that it was these hard rock trolls who were responsible for trying to destroy all other genres, which in a way they are. But um, she has to deal with this uh, completely unnecessarily ridiculous, overwhelming concept that it was in fact her ancestors who had caused the problem with the strings to separate. And so she has got to do the right thing despite what her it's just like oh my god I, I i'm really not enjoying or in some ways i am but in it, like a, sort of like watching a car crash but trying to see these massive multi multinational corporation film companies deal with these ideas of um basically colonization and uh how that's worked in children's animated films is a very weird thing Look, it's funny that you sort of talk about the politics of these animated films in that when I was watching a couple of minutes of it, it started out with the characters on screen. It's a bit of a flashback to, I guess, what had happened in the movie Trolls. Was it called Trolls? I yeah, I haven't, Trolls. Even, I haven't seen it either, so I might be missing okay. some crucial <laughs> story points. I suspect you're okay. But like they sort of have like a playful little thing for the first 30 seconds before suddenly these characters who looked a bit like sperm, but really they were actually tadpoles, I think, were yeah. like swimming through the water. And like I was watching that and I thought, you know what? I would so much prefer instead of Chris having forced me to watch this five minutes of Trolls World Tour, if this was a big live, like big budget Snorks movie. <laughs> oh, and Snorks. 
I started thinking about the Snorks and when I was watching it, I thought, well, why isn't there a Snorks movie? Like that's a fairly rich world that you could create a really good franchise series of films out of. Like there's benefits to that. And then of course, when you think about the Snorks, you have to think about their progenitors, the Smurfs, which I, I understand there is a Smurfs animated film coming out sometime soon. So yeah. like that probably actually fills the void that I'm looking for. But I don't know why there's these big ridiculous movies about different strands of music fighting off against each other when you could easily just create like interesting complex world, like fantasy worlds with characters like Smurfs and Snorks and play around with that, (laughs) which everything just feels less stupid. It just kind of feels like the action adventure stories for kids. Like why don't people do that? Like, isn't that the one, I think kids probably enjoy that more. Two, I think it's probably more franchise friendly and three, parents aren't smacking their heads against a chair while they're trying to make their way through this movie. Yeah, it's it feels like it's being done, you know, it's, it feels like it's being done to sort of service that woke culture and to sort of service the idea that, you know, cartoons, I guess, and stories for kids have traditionally been pretty vapid. And so we'll try and get some, we'll try and wedge some deeper and um, more meaningful ideas into here. But but really, it's a just a, it just, it feels so empty and hollow watching it. and And then just... Yeah, it and it, it seriously is just taking the space of something that could actually just be a lot of fun for kids, which um, is terrible. I tell you what, you should never do is watch the '80s animated Smurfs cartoon again um, because that is a that is an absolute disaster. Those Smurfs would be cancelled in thirty seconds flat. It is uh, there is some terrible, terrible stuff going on in the very first um, Smurfs episode and the creation of Smurfette. Let me tell you. Oh, look, here's the thing. So I've actually watched a little bit of Smurfs recently. And yeah, I totally get what you're talking about. You know exactly about. what I'm talking about. No, yeah, I do yeah. know what you're talking about. But the thing I thought about, because when you were just talking about like the politics of it all, that's what, you know, raised me once to talk about Smurfs a little bit. The Smurfs is a communist village where everyone is contributing to the good of the society. Everyone's got like a pre-assigned role. And so they're all working together for the greater good. Like there are political conversations you can have within that. And I don't know why you can't have a Smurfs movie talking about access to healthcare. Like, why not do that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, no, that's that's a totally the different thing, and I'm very much on board with that for sure. Yeah. But let's not try and solve the world's problems, and let's not try and like pretend we're making amends for colonization by including a uh, a, a nod to it in our animated films being created by the largest companies on earth. I think would be the the largest corporate entities on earth would be my criticism mostly around that. Uh, we've got to get out of here, Chris. There's the whole world passing us by. Look, it's true, but this has easily been um, one of the highlights of my week, as it always is, Dan. It's a pleasure to chat to you about this stuff. And I missed it for a few weeks there. I've, yeah. I missed our conversation, so I'm glad to be chatting to you again. Anyway, good news. The feud is over. This has been Always Be Watching. My <laughs> name, Dan Barrett, joined by one Christopher Yates. We'll be back next week. If you like the podcast, leave reviews. If you're there on the Apple Podcasts, it does help other people find the show. Uh, If you don't use Apple Podcasts, but you'd like people to find the show, hit the share button. (laughs) 